You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Bob Uricu. And I'm Kevin Brown. And we're here discussing idealism. Remember the last time in our last broadcast, we took a fork in the road. The fork was set up by Descartes. He distinguished between mind and matter and said all reality is dualistic. It's either mind or it's matter. We went down the road of matter and we ended up with the philosophy of materialism. It holds that everything is matter. What if we chose to go down the other fork in the road? We would find ourselves discussing idealism, in which everything is idea. All reality is idea. Now that leads us to some interesting paths, or forks. Yeah, interesting to, to say the least, because of the two options, idealism seems to strike many people as the least plausible. How in the world can you deny something as obvious as the table in front of you? Uh, you know, that's not just something in my mind. Although Barclay seems to want to say that what we're denying when we deny material substance is not all that important anyway. But we're obviously going to have to lay some groundwork to see how he gets there. Of course. Uh, starting, I guess, with Locke, who, strangely enough, wanted to come up with uh, what he called a common sense alternative to Descartes. Uh, primarily in epistemology, because he thought the whole notion of rationalism was untenable, primarily because it had the notion of innate ideas, which Locke thought was not only not uh, defensible, but also kind of a dangerous theory. Um, mm -hmm. In particular, Locke thought that, that if, if the theory of innate ideas were correct, it might justify uh, the tyranny uh, of kings. Uh, the idea being that if there are certain ideas in the mind from birth, that might mean that there are certain things about our reality set from birth, like our position in society. So the people who rule above us are innately destined to rule above us, whereas the people who are subservient are innately destined to be subservient. And Locke thought that was a dangerous idea, uh, especially since he was uh, one of the early advocates of representative government and democracy. That's a great insight because Locke lived in a time of political turmoil himself and he challenged the divine right of kings and he concluded that we must get all our knowledge from our senses but what kind of knowledge is it? And so he distinguished between two kinds of knowledge or qualities of our knowledge primary qualities and secondary qualities and the primary qualities such as a triangle, um, are objective. They're out there. But we don't know them as such. We only know them from their secondary qualities, such as they appear to us. And the qualities can change from person to person. Color, shape, weight. But just the idea of a triangle was something objective, and that stayed out there. But 
we can only know the secondary qualities and therefore we have ideas about things we don't know the things themselves we only know the ideas and now we're heading toward full-blown idealism yeah it's uh, not a not a short step although I don't, I don't know that Locke himself had the notion of idealism in mind he uh, I think was still primarily a dualist in the mm -hmm. Cartesian tradition mm -hmm. but he did certainly start down the road maybe maybe not intentionally because as you point out uh, in Locke's theory uh, all we have direct contact with are our ideas ideas of shape color smell and as you also point out Locke did not think those were actually in the object themselves I mean color is a perfect example uh, if you look very closely at an object at the microscopic level let's say it's not like the atoms of the table colored brown if the table happens to appear to be brown mm -hmm. uh, color as we now know is a matter of light being reflected and the part of the light that's reflected and not absorbed is what we see as the color so that's what Locke meant by, by the notion that the color is not actually in the object itself but there's got to be something to the object Locke, Locke thought which is the part that got him in, in a lot of philosophical trouble and that led to idealism because in Locke's world yeah our representations are ideas but it doesn't make any sense to think that the representations are just floating around without being in something. And so we're back to something we've talked about before that's a philosophically difficult idea, the notion of substance. Substance, yes. Substance coming from, as we, as we discussed, the Latin word substantia, which broken down means standing under something. So in order to know anything, qualities must reside in something. And it, it's, not, it's not a material object in philosophy it's what what it's the home of the qualities and that's intangible yeah and that, that's that's the strangest part of, of Locke's theory because he begins with the claim as an empiricist that all of our knowledge comes from sense experience and then he confesses that substance in which these qualities inhere is something we know not of and that confuses a lot of people because they wonder well if, if we can't perceive it how is it that we know it exists? Now, by definition, for Locke, it cannot be perceived. Substance cannot be perceived because substance is not a quality. All we can perceive are qualities, but the qualities have to be in something. So Locke, it seems like, thinks we can deduce the existence of substance without actually perceiving it. Well, this whole problem really was set up by Descartes by his distinction between mind and matter. And the brain is obviously matter, but the brain contains ideas. How could that be? To go back to the example of the table you used, we can perceive there's a table in front of us, but a table is a material object. How does that table get inside our head? It can't fit, literally. So it must be the idea of a table that's inside our mind. Now, our mind is not material as such. So it can only know ideas, non-material things. And from this comes the, the notion of idealism, that the mind can only know what is similar to it, non-material, something like an idea. Yeah, and this, this starts to seem to violate Locke's notion that we're, we're trying to look at this from a common sense standpoint. But as you point out, I mean, common sense would tell me that I, I, I can't assimilate the table inside 
my head. I mean, it's, it's not pos- possible physically, but I do have knowledge of the table. So we have to answer the question where that knowledge comes from, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the knowledge can only come from the ideas I gather from the table through sense experience. So it's like I'm collecting something from the table, but obviously I'm not collecting the substance itself. I'm collecting the attributes or what Locke calls qualities, and then sort of reassembling them in my head through a process Locke refers to as reflection, so that I come up with a more or less accurate representation of the object itself. And it's that representation that I have access to, right? The, uh, the idea, the complex idea of a table yes. or a chair or any other uh, uh, object. The challenge is before anybody who tries to understand human knowledge. Now, Descartes, as we recall, gave a kind of a lame, a lame explanation of how the mind can know ideas. He, he speculated it was the pineal gland in the brain. And we know that's not what's happening. Um, and Aristotle had to explain knowledge of material things by saying that we have a, an intellect in our minds, that the human soul has this power that other animals don't have, that the, it's called the intellect, and it can abstract ideas from sensible objects. So it's been discussed in philosophy for a long time. And that notion of abstraction is, is a little more uh, closer to, to Locke's idea. It's not exactly what Locke has in mind, but it's certainly closer than the, the, the strange Cartesian notion because uh, Descartes was much closer to the notion of Plato that some or all of our ideas are innate. Mm-hmm. They're already there, and that's the part that didn't make any sense at all to Locke. How in the world can, uh, can you look at a young child, for instance, and believe that that child, before it has much sense experience, knows some of these ideas. Perfect example is the idea of God, uh, uh, Descartes said was innate. Uh, and Locke looks around and doesn't see any evidence for that. I mean, ask a very small child, what's God, before they hear about him from, from anybody, and they're probably going to say, I don't know. They have no concept at all. Indeed. So how in the world can that be an innate idea? Sure, and Locke is living in in the wake of the Enlightenment, right in the midst of the Enlightenment, and he's seeing all religious ideas being challenged left and right. And there was no need of a hypothesis called God. Um, He just could explain a lot of things in in the universe without God. So... And we could certainly explain a lot of things without appealing to innate ideas. In fact, Locke points out that uh, the explanation itself is not the easiest possible explanation to get at the phenomena we're, we're looking at, which is knowledge. I mean, uh, there's there's probably a better explanation out there that satisfies what we're actually seeing, and that better explanation is all our knowledge comes from uh, sense experience. To borrow Aristotle's term, the mind is like a, a blank tablet, a tabula rasa. Mm-hmm. At birth, there's nothing there. The mind collects all that information from sense experience and then assembles it into the knowledge we have but that's a process that begins at birth it's not something that's already in place waiting to be unlocked as uh, as plato thought and mm-hmm. descartes did yeah for plato knowledge was remembering but um we still have that problem of the dissimilarity between ideas and matter and if the, if the mind is fundamentally non-material then it can only know things that are non-material, namely ideas. 
That's where Locke is going to lead us. Although the logical conclusion of that is to deny material substance, Locke stops short of that. He thinks that the, the logic of uh, his theory almost demands something that, although it cannot be perceived, we, we have to believe it's there, namely the material substance. Because take color, for instance. Color, it doesn't seem like color can just be floating in empty space. There's got to be something that the color is in. Same thing with any other attribute you want to talk about. Shape, texture, smell, weight. Don't, don't those things have to be in something? And it's no good saying that, well, those things are in the table because you have to answer the question, well, what's the table composed of? And so if you break it down to its constituent parts, you've got the qualities on one side, but that can't be all there is. There's got to be, seems like, something else to it. Sure, that's the primary quality, the substance, that we can't ever know. For example, this desk is going to be in this room when we leave it, when we're no longer perceiving it. Um, it's, uh, it's objective, it's there. We don't, our minds can't grasp what it really is. We can only grasp its appearances, but it's still there, the lock. And so even though our mind can't grasp what the, what the desk really is, according to Locke, our mind can provide us with an accurate representation of what the desk really is because the, the, the senses collect the various information. I can uh, feel the hardness of the desk. I can see the shape. If I tap on it with my hand, I can hear a sound. Each of those comes in through a different sense and then is combined in the mind somehow. Uh, through a process of reflection into the complex idea desk and of course it makes perfect sense to think that the desk is there whether I'm perceiving it or not it's just that when I happen to be perceiving it I'm perceiving a representation now this seems to lead to to a big problem uh, which some ph philosophical textbooks refer to as the egocentric predicament namely this claim I make that, that my idea represents the desk, how do I go about verifying that? Indeed, and that's going to lead us to another yeah, fork in the road. Right, straight, straight to the strange world of idealism, mm -hmm. because it seems off the top of my head that I cannot verify the claim that my idea represents the object, because in order to verify that claim, I'd have to be able to directly perceive both idea and object. But by Locke's own admission, I can only directly perceive the idea. So there's no way I can match them up. I can suppose that they represent objects, my ideas, but I can't ever conclusively verify that. Yet for Locke, there was still some confidence in our knowledge. He was, after all, a scientist. He was a, a medical doctor, um, though he didn't practice too much. But he had confidence that when he was dealing with a patient or dealing with anything in the physical world, he had reasonable certainty that there was something there even when he wasn't perceiving it. And who knew that uh, that reasonable certainty was going to be shattered by none other than uh, uh, an Irish bishop named George Barclay who we can talk about after we take a, a break on Radio Free Philosophy. <laughs>
So before the break, we left ourselves with a bit of a problem in Locke's epistemology. Uh, the idea that the notion of representative realism uh, is a claim that, that seemingly cannot be verified. And this led some to conclude that there was a serious problem with the whole notion of, of substance. In particular, George Barclay, who wanted to simply jettison substance. If that was the cause of the problem, there's an easy solution. Let's just get rid of it. We don't really need it, do we? Not at all. For Barclay, who was a devout Christian, a bishop, as you mentioned, in Ireland, uh, in County Cork. For Barclay, everything is an idea. And as his um, reasoning goes, ideas exist only in minds. And if everything is an idea, then all things that exist exist only in minds. It's perfectly sound reasoning. We live in an ideal world, a world of ideas. It seems to be sound reasoning, but the conclusion is so darn strange, right? That, that everything around us is just an idea, uh, presumably in somebody's mind. We'll, we'll have to figure out exactly whose mind uh, shortly. But uh, one way of thinking about it, to, to make it seem a little more reasonable, is often in, in, uh, in class when I teach this, I ask students, there's a palm tree in this room, do you believe me? And inevitably they say no. And I ask, well, why don't you believe me? And they say, well, well, because we can't perceive it. And that's exactly the logic that Barclay's using, right? If something can't be perceived, we naturally conclude that it doesn't exist. Percep perception and existence are inextricably linked. So if the palm tree does not exist, and we conclude that on the basis of our inability to perceive it, well, shouldn't we conclude that substance, material substance, doesn't exist either because we can't perceive that? And that's really the logic that he's, that he's playing on, which just leads to the, to the startling conclusion that our whole world is insubstantial. <laughs> yes, if, if our minds can only perceive what is like our minds, namely that, that which is immaterial, what need is there of an immaterial world? There's no way to know it because our mind is not compatible with it. It can only know ideas. And evidently, the, uh, the great Samuel Johnson once had a discussion with Barclay, and he greatly disliked Barclay's idea, and he thought it could be easily refuted. He just went over and kicked a rock and said, I refute Barclay thus. <laughs> and, of course, if you stop and think about it, that doesn't really refute Barclay. Barclay would just say, well, look, you know, what you perceive there was hardness, but that's just an idea. It's not like that hardness was in a physical substance. It was an idea that no doubt you perceived it. Barclay doesn't deny the perception at all. Sure. It's just the perception is not connected with some physical entity separate from it. Even the pain in his foot was a perception. Right, exactly. Everything is perception. And that leads Barclay to this astounding statement. He called it in Latin, esse est percipi, to be is to be perceived. So existence depends upon perception. No perception, no existence. It's that stark. And that leaves us with seemingly uh, nothing in the world. Except for Barclay, it doesn't. It, it, everything in the world is still intact, except the one piece of nonsense that Locke was on about, namely substance, which if you get rid of it, you're not really missing anything. I mean, another way to look at it is to uh, think about a particular object and then one by one in your mind take away all the attributes of the object. And 
when you take away all the attributes, you're left with nothing. nothing so that must mean that the object is nothing but those attributes. But as we've pointed out before, those attributes are just ideas. And they exist only in minds that perceive them. And the only reason we can talk to each other is that we have a common structure in our minds. We perceive things the same way. Now, Barclay recognized there was a potential problem with this theory because what it seems like he's saying is that things only exist when we're looking at them or perceiving them. So if we look away, maybe they no longer exist. But Barclay didn't want to conclude that because that, that seems too ridiculous, as we point out before the break. Uh, it seems reasonable to suppose that the table exists even when I'm not looking at it. In fact, there's a very easy experiment you can do to, to seemingly prove this. You take a candle and you light it and put it in one room and then go into another room and come back an hour later and the candle is burned down. Well, obviously that seems to indicate that the candle's existence has been persistent even though we haven't been perceiving it. So Barclay wonders how do you get out of this problem of you, you have to connect perception and existence. That only makes good sense. But you don't want to lead to the conclusion that once we stop perceiving something, it no longer exists. So how do we get out of that problem? Indeed, that, that is a problem, isn't it? If, if the world is kept in existence because there are millions of perceivers all perceiving it at the same time, what if those perceivers were to all die? Would the world go away? So there has to be some ground or foundation or some perceiver that keeps everything going even when all the human perceivers pass in and out of existence. Yeah, it's got to be a, a, a perceiver that's capable of being on watch 24-7. 24-7, sort of a universal perceiver, yeah. That's right. And we, we can never forget, Barclay was a devout Christian, a bishop. And so he has this idea of God as the perceiver of the world. Because God perceives the world, it comes into being. And it stays in being, even when human perceivers no longer perceive it. So this must, in some sense, all this meaning reality, be an idea in the mind of God. Yes. Including, strangely enough, us, because part of our knowledge of ourselves is, is through sense perception, so we must essentially be uh, mental. There's no physical substance to us either. Right. We're ideas in the mind of God. Imagine that. People laughed at uh, Barclay, and there was a man named Ronald Knox who wrote a limerick that kind of sums up Barclay and his his epistemology. If you know what a limerick is, it's a, a carefully timed poem with a punchline. So here is Knox on Barclay. There once was a young man who said, God must think it exceedingly odd to find that his tree won't continue to be when there's no one about in the quad. That's the quandary, isn't it? When if no one's perceiving the tree yeah, that's in the, the quadrangle of the, of the university, then the tree doesn't exist. This is the classic question. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it make a sound, does it make a sound? Precisely. And Barclay has an answer. Yes, and Ronald Knox kind of sums it up this way with this counter limbric. Dear Sir, 
your astonishment's odd. For I am always about in the quad, and that's why my tree will continue to be, since observed by yours faithfully, God. So we've answered a perennial philosophical question today. If the tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it make a sound, does it make one? And Barclay would say, well, of course it makes a sound because God was perceiving it. Precisely. And a lot of people are, of course, rolling their eyes at this whole seemingly ridiculous notion. But I often wonder if it's all that ridiculous if we just put ourselves in Barclay's position. Because as you point out, he was a bishop. He's a very devout Christian. And look at what's going on in the world around him. Here you've got this metaphysics of dualism, thanks to Descartes, which seems sort of plausible, except that it's got this hugely difficult problem that nobody seems to be able to solve. Interaction. How do mind and body interact? Well, almost nobody seems to be able to solve it. There does seem to be a possible solution on offer, namely materialism. But look at what it gets you. Determinism, no free will and no God. Now, that's got to strike Barclay as completely unacceptable, the notion that materialism leads almost inexorably to atheism. And so, what's the only other alternative? Well, the only other alternative is the metaphysics of idealism. And look at it from the standpoint of Barclay, who was thinking it through probably this way. Idealism sounds strange, but what other problems does it really have? It doesn't have the problem of determinism. We still have free will because we're essentially a, a mental being. Uh, we don't have to explain interaction because there's no physical substance. And all we lose is Locke's ridiculous notion of a substance that couldn't be perceived anyway. And to boot, idealism gives God something to do, something very important. That is to sustain mm -hmm. existence of everything. And it's so the perfect answer. Exactly. Bishop Barclay was saving the intellectual world from atheism and determinism and nihilism, utter frustration with being. He was saving the Christian faith, and he did it through idealism, because free will, human free will, is a spiritual thing, and that's it. it it's the essence of being human is to be free, but freedom is linked with God, who is the giver of freedom, the creator of freedom, and the sustainer of freedom. God is free and creates substances similar to God in the image and likeness of God, namely human beings. So Barclay saved Christianity from what he thought was a, a, a massive threat. And it's ironic in doing that because uh, uh, most Christians today, I suspect, are, are dualists. They would utterly sure. reject Barclay's idealism. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if they reject it on any logical grounds. It just seems so ridiculous. But then again, uh, we noticed last time that uh, contemporary physics leads to some seemingly ridiculous conclusions yes. as well that are very much like Barclay's idealism. The notion that perception affects reality is a central part of uh, quantum mechanics. and It's not at all dissimilar from, from Barclay's notion. It's essential to Barclay because he was a relativist. Perception is relative to the perceiver. And that's what quantum physics is saying. So Barclay was way ahead of his time, it seems. Yeah, it might turn out uh, that Barclay's idea, strange as it is, turns out to be the scientifically most viable 
uh, option. Mm -hmm. the, the physical substance is really nothing more than energy we talked about, and energy is affected by seemingly our perceptions of it. That's, that's what Heisenberg seemed to conclude. And Heisenberg was a big fan of Berkeley. He wrote yes. extensively about Berkeley's philosophy and thought there was something to it. So here we go. Philosophy, the power of ideas. There's nothing so powerful as an idea. And it looks like Barth came up with a beautiful one. You know, another th interesting thing that Berkeley's idea uh, shows, the idea of idealism, is the, the connection between a lot of these different theories. Because we, we started with uh, materialism, that, that one fork in the road uh, that seemed to lead us in a totally different direction from idealism, but now they seem to be coming together, especially in, in quantum uh, mechanics, the, the notion that, uh, as we just mentioned, that substance uh, might be nothing more than, than energy. There might not be any substance at all. And that puts me in mind of a notion called phenomenalism, the denial of any substance, physical or mental, which is exactly what our next character wants to advocate, a fellow named David Hume. Mm -hmm. So we'll perhaps see how those ideas are, are strangely connected in our next episode of Radio Free Philosophy. We'll look forward to it.